Break out your beach towel and snaffle a poolside table like Helmut Kohl snaffling up blood sausages at a hotel buffet. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast celebrating the overlaps and the awkwardnesses between Britain and Germany, two nations that share a rich tradition of cultural interchange and yet can't even agree on the meaning of the phrase half ten. I'm Katja Heuer, a German historian based in Sussex. And I'm Oliver Moody, a British journalist living in Berlin. Today we're firing up our modular synthesizers and turning our amplifiers up to 11 for a look at the history of Anglo-German rock and electronic music. We'll start 50 years ago in the grotty basement disco of a student accommodation block at Karl Marx University, Leipzig, in socialist East Germany. Behind the bar, a short-haired physics undergraduate called Angela Kastner, later Angela Merkel, is mixing drinks with laboratory alcohol and cherry whiskey. And what do you think's on the sound system? Wagner's spring cycle? <laughs> I can absolutely <laughs> picture the young Merkel pogoing away to the ride of the Valkyries. But astonishingly, no. The biggest hit in the disco back then is the Rolling Stones, the very essence of the morally degenerate capitalist West, shaken up and squeezed into four pairs of excessively tight Levi jeans. I wonder which one of their songs was Merkel's favourite. <laughs> Somehow I doubt it was She's a Rainbow. Yeah, given her later record in office, I like to think it was probably You Can't Always Get What You Want, or possibly Under My Thumb. <laughs> Surely it must have been Angie, though. She actually used to use that song in her election campaigns until the band objected. The reason I brought this story up at the start is I think it illustrates just how irresistibly Western rock music swept through German youth culture, even up to the point where not even the wall could hold it back. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't always that popular on the other side of the wall um, either, where an older generation, certainly, of, of West Germans had grown up during um, the, the sort of ultra-conservative regime of the Nazis who told them that the sort of poppy music that was beginning to emerge was... Um, you know, it's sort of devious influence on that culture and, and sort of certainly had to be avoided. And so when they still dominated the cultural scene in West Germany in the 1950s and early 1960s, they were trying to keep out all of these uh, pop and rock influences that came from the West that they saw as a as a sort of um, negative influence on their children. The younger generation that became to, or sort of was coming of age at this point in the, in the 1960s called this older generation Spießer or Spießberger, which basically means a sort of very boring, stuck-up type person um, and was beginning to almost rail against that by uh, using culture and music as a, as a sort of means to, to do that. Similarly, actually, to what happens in Britain and in the US at the same time as well, this generational conflict um, happens in West Germany too. And it doesn't really help that in the media there's, there's one war crime trial after another and people bring up this sort of... Um, you know, generational conflict, even more children ask their parents, what did you do during the war? And before um, their parents try and, and sort of throw a large blanket of silence over that. And so this, this generational clash bears out um, culturally and, and young people begin to turn away from their parents and towards uh, Western music. And what they do is basically they turn to the pop music that's beginning to emerge in the in the West and try and turn it into into sort of German versions of the same thing really so you get this whole schlager movement um which is basically a sort of german pop mixed in with a little bit of folk i guess um it's sort and of, schlager means like hits right yeah it's just very sort of beaty catchy light pop music um and so that's where the where the name originally comes from i suppose even the name is a is a germanification of 
of beat music, I guess, in that sense, in the, in the sense that it's sort of catchy, easy to listen to. Um, and that became a, a massive thing. So whilst in 1962, uh, almost all of the number one hits were still in German, often German cover versions of, of English songs, um, by the mid-1960s, you're up to 50% foreign, um, mostly English-speaking songs. Um, and at the end of the decade, there's only 5 to 10% of the songs in the charts still, still German. Um, but people are trying to sort of really play into that. So there's people like Cliff Richard, for example, who started singing in German because he did discover that there's a huge market to be had. So, for instance, the, his Fallen Fall in Love uh, song, he, he recorded that in German as uh, Bin Verliebt. Um, and sort of sang the whole thing in German, became a huge hit, and, and lots of uh, West German Fräuleins were, were putting up posters of him in their bedrooms. I can't imagine anything more enticing than Cliff Richard doing an album in German. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the what you, what you said about the cultural conservatism, I mean, it was definitely similar in Britain and America, but the sheer levels of reactionary sentiment in the German press at the time were astonishing. Um when Jimi Hendrix did his first West German tour in the um, early 60s, one of the German broadsheets said that he looked like he'd been coaxed out of the jungle with the help of a banana. It was quite common for journalists to use the term Negermusik mm. to describe rock and roll, which which basically is almost as offensive as, as it would sound in English, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and people, you know, forget how how much of an influence Nazism still was in the 50s and 60s. People somehow imagine 1945, the war was lost, um, and, and this whole thing just went out of people's heads, but it really didn't. So all of the indoctrination, the, the pervasiveness of the Nazi regime really was very, very difficult to get out of. Uh, by that point, sort of middle-aged Germans' um, heads, and it was only the younger people who deliberately railed against that as much as anything else who then turned to Western culture and Western music to try and find a way around that. And so the German market was really ripe, I would say, at this point for English music, uh, precisely because of this, this phenomenon. Well, we may as well begin this story in an economically depressed northern port city ruined by the bombing of the Second World War. Hamburg? Well, actually, I was thinking of Liverpool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the two cities do have a lot in, in common at the time in, in the sense that um, they're both trying to uh, recover basically after the economic devastation of the war. But in Hamburg, uh, very real physical actual devastation was, was immense really um, due to the carpet bombing that happened um, and the firebombs as well that were dropped. It was pretty much completely destroyed and beginning to rebuild itself uh, in the 50s and, and in the uh, 60s. Uh, but there are obviously similarities in that they, they both have very large working class uh, communities, uh, produced music and culture accordingly. And, and so it was perhaps a natural uh, link there between uh, Britain's most famous export at the time and, and this German audience. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the Beatles. Um, so John Lennon and, and Paul McCartney were only 16 and 15, um, respectively, when they first uh, met in Liverpool. Uh, they were then briefly or quickly shortly afterwards joined by George Harrison, who was also only 15 um, and started playing uh, rock and roll music, which they largely copied from from the US variety at this point. They basically were looking to obviously make a, a bigger success of themselves. Um, and it was suggested to them that there is, as we were just saying, this market in Germany that um, was sort of just waiting for English um, influences to come in. Um, and so their then official, unofficial, sorry, manager, Alan Williams, uh, suggested that they should go for a residential or residency basically in Hamburg for a while and, and play there to try and find a, a market in Germany. 
interestingly, both McCartney's father and Lennon's aunt, um, were who were both basically looking after them at the time, um, were very reluctant to let them go because Hamburg had a little bit of a reputation of being... I don't know, like the Sodom and Gomorrah, I suppose, of of Europe at the time. It was a, a crime-infested sort of sin pit, really, um, well known for its um, red light district, for all of the debauchery that was going on there, drugs. Um, eventually, Lennon convinced his aunt that he'd make so much money there in the in the short time that they were going that he could come back and basically start his career. Um, and McCartney basically just yeah carried on um, trying to reassure his father until he let him go. Um, they hired uh, Pete Best then as a drummer um, because they were both guitarists. Um, and uh, and he was the only one who could actually speak German, right? Yeah. To any, to any level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't think it was necessarily something that they had to learn because it was always meant to be a, a, a temporary thing. But yes, it would have certainly uh, helped with, certainly with Lenin's um, uh, antics, I suppose, trying, trying, to, trying to culturally fit, a, fit in a little bit better than they, than they did. They did stick out like a sore thumb in, in Hamburg, even in the... Uh, sort of slightly outrageous um, scenes in Hamburg. So they, they left basically Liverpool for um, Hamburg in, in August 1960 um, and were aiming for three and a half months residency uh, there to try and, um, you know, get the ball rolling on their, on their band. They did indeed get quite a lot of money. So they were um, offered £100 per week, which sounds ridiculous when you think of what they earned later, but it was a lot more. Than they would have but it was in, I mean they the, the managers really got bang for their buck there because the schedules that the Beatles had to play were just unbelievable yeah they're gigging at the start for four hours a day seven days a week at intervals from 8.30 in the evening until 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even the way that they travelled there, you know, we now imagine the, the Beatles as the superstars that they became later, but they they went there in an Austin J4 minibus, uh, 10 men <laughs> and all of their stuff in it, um, you know, travelling all the way from uh, from Britain to, to Germany and that, which, you know, sounds bizarre now that we think of the Beatles, um, you know, of, of what they became uh, later. I also imagine just, you know, arriving in Hamburg must have been an absolute culture shock. As we were saying, the city had just rebuilt itself completely modern now um, in, in this sort of, you know, very quickly raised concrete uh, style that, that many of the German industrial cities took on um, after the war. Um, so, you know, they're, they're only teenagers, remember, and they, they got there and, and there was neon lights everywhere, you know, hustle and bustle of the city very, very busy, um, everything modern. And they were shocked, absolutely shocked when they arrived in um, in St. Pauli, which is the uh, sort of working class district and specifically on the Reeperbahn, which is the red light district where their, uh, the, the club that they were playing in uh, was located. So it's just like a bunch of teenagers from Liverpool arriving right in the centre of the red light district in Hamburg um, at night. Apparently the um, club that they were playing at the Indra club wasn't open when they arrived and so they had to get somebody to literally just unlock the door for them and they walked into this dismal um, scene there where there wasn't even anywhere to sleep they had to sleep on the on the seats um, for the first few nights later they were told that they could sleep in the storeroom of the Bambi Kino which was like a small cinema um, next to, to it where um, McCartney would later say um, we lived back, backstage in the Bambi Kino next to the toilets and you could always smell them the room had been an old storeroom and there were just concrete walls and nothing else no heat no wallpaper not a lick of paint uh, and then two sets of bunk beds with not very many covers on them just Union Jack flags uh, we were frozen so they were not really living the lives of you know the rock idols that they became later in Hamburg yeah and I think 
this sort of Church of the Beatles has kind of sanctified this period in in retrospect in a way that kind of obscures two slightly contradictory aspects of it. And the first is just the extreme professionalism that they needed to maintain this really grueling schedule and um, sort of spin out their material for up to six hours a night and just involved huge amounts of improvisation. I I feel like that was probably quite formative in terms of um, allowing them to to get used to kind of riffing off each other. But on the other end of the spectrum, um, just the sheer anarchy of it. Um, So a few years ago, um, my colleague David Crossland um, interviewed Horst Fascher, who was uh, a a former boxing champion who started out as um, a bouncer at the Intra Club and ended up founding the Star Club, which was where the Beatles first played their really big gigs. And um, Fascher said that at the early Beatles concerts, um, John Lennon used to get up on the stage and greet the audience with a Nazi salute and shout Heil Hitler. And sometimes he'd put a black comb on his upper lip and pretend it was a, a toothbrush. But, but most of the audience often... laughed, right? Didn't they? I mean, it's, it's interesting that the Germans even, it's just, you know, sort of two decades after the war and they're already on the whole responding to it reasonably amicably. Well, lo- lots of them found it funny, but some of them really objected. And they used to kind of get up on the stage and try and brawl with John Lennon. So <laughs> Fascia, this kind of very muscular boxer has to get up onto the front of the stage and kind of thrust the irate Hamburg fans away. And um, Bash said he'd once caught John Lennon cavorting with a, with a young German woman in a, in a toilet cubicle while the rest of the band were on stage. And he chucked a, bottle, a bucket of cold water over them and told Lennon to get up on the stage even if he was naked. <laughs> so Lennon um, went on the stage wearing nothing but his wire fronts and um, the toilet seat, which he'd sort of um, draped around his neck yeah i um, think it's fair to say that that the uh, early years there sort of made them didn't they i mean they, they sort of found out how far they could push the rock and roll thing without actually disintegrating as a as a band harrison apparently said himself afterwards uh, that he saw this entire period in hamburg as their apprenticeship almost they learned how to how to play an audience how to um you know find a very narrow path between sort of making jokes but not offending people too much um, and also they were playing in front of fairly large audiences for the first time. So at the Star Club, as you just mentioned, um, you could get 2,000 people into that. So this may not sound as large as the venues that they were playing later, but for the first time they were having to deal with a mass audience rather than just kind of club and, and pub uh, venues. And I think that really made them the, the band that they became later, or certainly that's the way that, that they saw it. Uh, also, the the Germans that they met there had a huge influence on on them. So when you think like Astrid Kircher, um, you know Klaus Vormann, uh, Jürgen Vollmer, um, they they sort of were the earliest Beatles fans, really. But the trio of them turned up almost every night once they'd encountered the Beatles and became a little bit obsessed with them. And then Astrid Kircher uh, finally, oh, not finally, so famously started dating uh, Sutcliffe, became a huge influence on the band. Uh, and it's late; it was later even claimed that it was her who encouraged the Beatles to adopt the um, uh, mop top haircuts that they adopted later although she personally denies that she was just saying it's something that everyone did in the scene that they were hanging out with and and she kind of just you know cut their hair in the same way that everyone else was doing it but but she certainly was a huge um, artistic and, and personal influence on them and um and how did the beatles shape german rock music in return well um it was actually in germany that they recorded their their first single uh, my bonnie um and from from then on, really, the the type of music that they were playing became a, a huge influence on on German artists as well. That's now been recognised by uh, the the city of Hamburg actually putting a, a Beatles Platz into the uh, town centre. So there's there's an actual 
place now named after them as well because they they basically shaped early German uh, pop and rock music by by being right at the heart of it in in Hamburg and then it it sort of spread from from there. I I would say their influence can't really be underestimated in Germany and on the way that people were kind of waiting almost for an inspiration from the West and the Beatles. I think were that. Um, they also then came to the attention of Brian Epstein as well, um, which was obviously another huge career move for them. And Germans always feel, I think, certainly people in Hamburg that they had a a huge influence on the Beatles and vice versa. There's a special relationship there, I think. And they actually recorded a couple of their early singles in, in sort of German versions. So um, we, we'll, we'll do a Spotify playlist to go along with this episode because there's so much good music that is worth kind of listening to in parallel. And so much um, not so good there music. Is, <laughs> and so much not so good music, including Sie lieb dich, ja, ja, ja. And I'm pretty sure that um, listeners can work out um, what, what, the, what the English original of that is. But we'll definitely put that on the playlist. Um, but it wasn't just a one-way musical traffic from Britain to Germany, was it? Not at all. Um, people who are into music often quite passionately hate the term krautrock with good justification because it was basically made up by British music journalists to describe a bunch of experimental styles in Germany that didn't really have that much in common. Um, And at one end of the spectrum, you have um, sort of experimental electronic psychedelia um, bands, particularly such as Tangerine Dream, who were picked up in the 70s, by the early 70s by by John Peel, the famous uh, BBC radio DJ. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, you have bands like Noi and Can, um, who are playing very sort of, um, again, psychedelic, but in a very different sense, rock music with this famous sort of driving beat known as motoric, which is supposed to kind of convey the sense of moving forward into the future and then kind of often quite improvised guitar parts that would just go on and on for sort of 20 minutes was not uncommon for a single. Um, But the mother of them all in terms of um, Germany influencing the course of British music was, of course, Kraftwerk, um, who were a a sort of electronic group who came together at the very end of the 60s in Dusseldorf around um, Ralf Hütter and Florian Schneider. And um, one of the interesting things about Kraftwerk was that they thought of themselves as, to use this very pompous German term, a Gesamtkunstwerk. (laughs) The, the sort of total work of art where it's not just about what the band band sounds like, it's about what they look like, their identity, this kind of conscious attempt to erase the individualism and egomania of rock and to make out that the musicians are just kind of interchangeable parts in a machine. They were very heavily influenced um, by Gilbert and George, the British concept artist who did shows in Dusseldorf just before the band got together and um, their big breakthrough um, was in I think 1974 when they released a single uh, well an album and a single called Autobahn about driving down the Autobahn and the title track um, went on for 22 minutes and 43 seconds. <laughs> Certainly quite out there isn't it I mean the, the whole idea of the of this Gesamtkunstwerk thing was still relatively new um, and always obviously they were also despite the kind of British influences on them they were also quite German in many ways weren't they so how did how did the Brits take to them well it's funny really when you think of how kind of saintly they've become in retrospect but at the time um the British press really didn't take well to them at all um John so John Peel who, who was a big early fan of Tangerine Dream wasn't that enthusiastic about Kraftwerk and um NME which was one of the really big music magazines of the day um, was positively hostile. So when Autobahn came out, it said in its review that they were dimly fumbling for approachability and compared their sound to um, 
Pinky and Perky, which is this sort of sci-fi hallucinogenic children's television series about two um, animated pigs. And um, I think Crawford, to be fair, didn't really help themselves a lot here. They did a big um, American interview um, where Ralph Hutter suggested that um, implanting electrodes into the brains of the audience would be the final solution to the music problem. And this sort of um, fine German irony was, was a bit lost on the NME, which reprinted the interview and alongside this doctored image putting Kraftwerk into an old Nazi party rally at the Nuremberg parade grounds. And um, NME absolutely ruined Kraftwerk's um, sort of first tour in the UK. So in 1975, they came in to promote their um the album after autobahn radioactivity and they were just left to playing left playing to all these almost empty venues in in london and newcastle and cardiff i think in the early years what they were trying to do was was not just lost on on sort of britain and the the global audience but to some extent on germans as well it's quite surprising that that Kraftwerk actually never had the standing i would say never developed that sort of cult status that that it did in, in Britain and in the US as well. When when their first album came out, which was also just called uh, Kraftwerk, um, it only reached, uh, I think, number 30 in the German LP charts. So it, it wasn't, you know, like they started off as, as famous rock stars, or not, electro stars basically in Germany, but uh, and then went abroad. But actually, it's almost the other way around. It's only once it was picked up, really, in the US where... Bit by bit, uh, once they started releasing singles and, and things like that, they, they climbed up the Billboard charts. Um, in France, strangely enough, in, in 1976, they were uh, number one for weeks and weeks uh, in the French charts um, with with uh, radioactivity, radioactivity, um, which, you know, when you think about it, they, they were in many ways, you know, obviously German in their lyrics, but also in the way that they appeared. But it they they made a much bigger influence or much bigger impact outside of of Germany, where they were sometimes even sort of called the Beatles of electropop for the influence that they had on on people internationally, like David Bowie and um, Susie and the Banshees and, and Joy Division and, and people like that. Yeah, this this may be wrong, but I'm I'm fairly sure they didn't have a number one album in Germany until the Tour de France collection, which came out in the early two thousands, sort of thirty years after they they sort of started to make it in the first place. Yeah, and even even when um, um, you know, I had sort of school friends that went to the US for a, a sort of, you know, exchange year in, um, at, at American high schools. They always came back saying they're absolutely obsessed with Kraftwerk. I don't know why that is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they, they never reached the same sort of cult status in Germany as they as they had in um, elsewhere. But they're, they're, I mean, their influence on, on British and American music in purely musical terms was massive. I mean, you had a, sort of the wave of synth pop in the late 70s and early 80s um, owed enormous debt to Kraftwerk and then um, indirectly via Detroit techno, they've really kind of shaped modern dance music. And then their sort of um, collage approach to electronics, I think also had quite a big influence on a lot of styles of, of rap music. So Africa Bambata's single Planet Rock, which is one of the kind of um, really famous early Rap tracks in the in, the, in 1981 that sampled um, Kraftwerk's numbers and and um, the duo met because they liked Kraftwerk so much. But the most interesting thing about them for me is how they anticipated a lot of the ambiguous ways we feel about modern technology and recognised the kind of tension between dystopia and utopia that's implicit in a lot of it. Um, for example, um, in 1981 they released an album called Computer World and the the title track talks about um, all of these police agencies and banks that are holding people's data, including um, Scotland Yard and the BKA. And um, before that album came out, their house had actually been raided 
by the BKA because they had computers and the BKA was trying to run a massive um, dragnet investigation into radical left-wing terrorists and were just suspicious automatically of the fact that Kraftwerk had computers. So I think they were really alive to the ways in which um, digital technology would make people feel alienated or or persecuted or kind of constantly watched over as well as... um, the ways that it would it would sort of um, create new possibilities for humanity. Yeah, and I think in that respect, maybe it helped that they were singing. Obviously, there's there's stuff in German as well because it has that you know obviously sound to it that English people and or English speaking people associate with. You know, even at, certainly at the time that they were recording this, still were where the Nazis were still in living memory. But you know, people associated with a obviously harshness and coldness, but also still with the Gestapo and, and sort of, you know, security states, police states and so on. So I suppose it fit in uh, in that respect. Okay, I think even the man-machine Gesamtkunstwerk, that is Tommy's and Jerry's, um, needs to take a quick break for repairs. Auf Wiederhören. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that puts the GLAD back into your Borussia Mönchengladbach. This is the part of the podcast where I issue our regular reminder that we are almost always sincerely delighted to be challenged, questioned, praised, defamed, corrected on our pronunciation of David Bowie or our sloppy use of the term Krautrock and generally put in our place by our highly knowledgeable listeners. Today, that reminder is especially pertinent as we're trespassing on one of the few fields of Anglo-German history where even hardened professionals risk tripping up and losing a limb in the minefield of sensitivities and factual disputes. I'm referring, of course, to modern music. I think it's about time that we covered um, probably one of the most famous Anglo-German music interactions of them all when David Bowie came to Berlin. So how did Bowie fit in among the Berliners? Um, It was largely thanks to the classic rock and roll trinity of drugs, fascism and pork that Bowie wound up in Berlin. Um, In the early 70s, he had developed an absolutely monstrous cocaine habit in Los Angeles and had really kind of uh, lost control of of his mental whereabouts. And um, he was coming to the end of his, his sort of thin white Duke period and really quite ostentatiously flirting 
with fascism. He actually went out in, at a gig in Stockholm and said he believed Britain could benefit from a fascist leader and he was sort of photographed doing what looked a lot like a Hitler salute. And um, so he was, he was pretty lost, really. And um, he did a gig in early 1976 at the Deutschlandhalle in West Berlin where he ran into Edgar Fröser, the um, sort of founder of Tangerine Dream and, and one of the great characters of West German pop. And um, Fröser was a sort of Bowie super fan, but kind of froze up. And then um, Bowie ended up insisting that they went for pigs, trotters and sauerkraut because he wanted the sort of full Weimar Berlin experience. And poor Edgar Fröser, who was a vegetarian, had to try and find them somewhere that would serve them enormous quantities of, of pork. And then um, a few weeks later, um, Bowie moved into the Fröser family home on the Schwäbische Straße in, um, in southwest West Berlin. I think he was also struck in Berlin by this profound sense of, of West Berlin being lost in a way as well. Uh, it being at this point, obviously, the Cold War um, and Berlin is West Berlin is surrounded by this sea of communism and, and this little island sort of clinging on to uh, to its, its capitalist democratic ways. I think this, this really struck a chord with with him. Uh, he was certainly profoundly influenced by the fact that various um lethal incidents happened whilst he was in Berlin. So, for example, Dietmar Schweitzer, who was only 18, um, an 18-year-old um, East German, was trying to cross um, over to the other side of the Berlin Wall from east to west um, and uh, was shot by Berlin border guards, which, of course, you know, went across the media everywhere and, and was, a, was a huge event in, in West Berlin as, as much as it was in the East. Um, and it really shocked, I think, Bowie to see these, um, you know, actual real-life events of, of sort of Cold War separation of, around him and made him acutely aware of the fact that he lived, you know, in Berlin in this, in this sort of isolation. And it had a huge impact on, on his um, music as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, while he was there, he announced he was going to record what he called the Berlin Triptych, which is now commonly referred to as the Berlin Trilogy, which is pr pretty much a total misnomer. I think only one of the three albums, Heroes, was, was actually fully recorded. In Berlin. Yeah, that is true. But but Bowie's music is very sort of periodic, isn't it? He's, he tends to sort of do things in sequences, and, and they do actually sort of theme together, I suppose, under this uh, under this influence that you had in in Berlin, despite the fact that only Heroes is. Uh, recorded in Berlin, but Heroes in particular is hugely influenced, of course, by his experience in Berlin. So as I was just mentioning about Dietmar Schweitzer, um, there was another incident um, shortly after where a, a young East Berliner was trying to cross, a, just to swim across Henry Weiser, across the river um, Spree and, and um, drowned. And this really had a huge impact on, on Heroes, which... Uh, the lyrics are, are about basically a, a German couple, one East, one West, trying to uh, reunite across the uh, German, well, across the Berlin Wall and, and failing. And I think, you know, in, that's a theme, really, this kind of being lost, this despair, the, the um, separation that, that comes across in the in the Berlin sequence. Yeah, I mean, his, his engagement with Germany was very funny because he was he was very clearly absolutely steeped in German culture in some ways and not just the music I mean he he ended up later on doing a whole EP of songs based around um, Bertolt Brecht's play Baal and he used to go to um, a lot of um, modern art galleries um, and the, the sort of very famous um, album cover for um, Heroes is based on a painting by um, Erich Heckel that he saw in the Brucker Museum at the same time, I don't think his German was ever terribly good. 
Uh, he even managed to misspell Neukölln, which is sort of one of the main parts of West Berlin, on the track list for heroes. Um, but tying into what you said about Berlin, West Berlin being a sort of lost little island, there, there is something that he said about this this period when he kind of encapsulated it as a sense of yearning for a future that we all knew would never come to pass. And you can, I think you can really hear that in a lot of the lyrics to um, all three of the so-called Berlin albums. Yeah, also the Hansa studio where he recorded um, Heroes was only 150 metres from the wall. Um, and, uh, you know, it did have a huge influence on him because he, he would basically walk up to the studio seeing, actually physically seeing the wall in front of him and, and that did have a huge impact. Although I think Berlin always was more of a concept, really, almost to him, even whilst he lived there than, as you say, than necessarily genuinely engaging as such with the surroundings around him. I think it was more the, the themes of, of Berlin um, that interested him than, you know, trying to genuinely immerse himself in the culture and language, I suppose, um, around him. And there's a there's a story about um, while he was recording Heroes in, in the Hansa studio and um, one of the session musicians looked up through the window and saw that there was this um, guy in an East German machine gun nest who was watching them through his binoculars. And the session musician um, got an angle poised lamp out and tried to dazzle the um, the machine gunner. <laughs> and um, Bo was so terrified that he and his producers have dived under a desk for cover in case the, the border guard opened fire. <laughs> it must have been absolutely terrifying, especially, I mean, most of the West Berliners felt that way. But especially if you've uh, newly moved to the city and you're not used to the constant tension um, the occasional bloodshed that was still happening at the Berlin Wall, less so than in the 1960s when it was first built in, in 1961 because the original uh, Berlin Wall was so patchy and so badly built that it almost invited people to to still try and go over it and it was really just guarded by, by soldiers and therefore the shootings were much more common than uh, in the 1970s when this border became more and more sophisticated and therefore kept lots of people in without soldiers actually interacting with them. But nonetheless, you did have incidences like the couple that um, David Bowie himself witnessed in Berlin and I think that really did strike a, a note with him, the sense of being lost. I think that was also the reason why he wanted to play that uh, famous um, concert in uh, Berlin, which the Heroes concert, which um, the ge- German government um, is still, even now, um, sort of so grateful for that they, um, you know, accredit Bowie almost in, in helping of bringing the Berl- Berlin Wall uh, down. Um, and that's because this was basically like a three-day open-air concert, but it was held in front of the Reichstag, which in Berlin uh, isn't far from the from the wall, so it was so close to it that if you stood on the other side in East Berlin, you could also hear it. And as we were just saying, Heroes, the actual title song, is about the divide. And it, Bowie himself said it was such an emotional occasion that even he felt himself tearing up on, on stage and, and sort of felt that the audience were responding to that. Um, as well, the RIA's radio channel, this is the, the radio in the American sector, the, the West German radio channel, which had been in West Berlin radio channel, which had been in place since um, the, the early post-war years, were also broadcasting it live. Um, and they knew that this could be received by uh, people in East Germany as well. So people were listening in live from the other side um, as well. And this is something that left a profound impact on both uh, basically Berlin, East and West and, and Bowie himself. Um, As well, he would later say it was one of the most emotional performances that he'd ever done. He was in tears um, and and explained that uh, in his own words, we kind of heard that a few of the East Berliners might actually get the chance to hear the thing, but we didn't realise in what numbers they would. 
And then there were thousands on the other side that had come close to the wall. So it was like a double concert where the wall was the division. And we could hear them cheering and singing along on the other side. God, even now I get choked up. It was breaking my heart at the time. Yeah, and I I think the chronology is important here for this idea that Bowie might have sort of somehow single-handedly torn down the wall because he was in Berlin 1976 to 1979. In in fact, um, he actually lived for most of that period um, a couple of doors down from me. Um, where, where I live now, and there's a um, there's a shrine um, in the street with um, a, a sort of painting of him from the Aladdin Sane period, and um, he's got sort of permanently roses and candles scattered outside it. Um, there are portraits of him all in the local shops and bars. So there's there's very much still a kind of local cult of, of Bowie. Um, but um, so the, he was there in the late seventies, and this Heroes concert was was about a decade later. So by the, that point, sort of Glasnost and Perestroika were already well underway. Um, obviously, things hadn't really got moving in East Germany to quite the same extent yet. But it was, you know, only a couple of years before the Berlin Wall did actually fall. So he, he, it wasn't, you know, like some sort of um, extremely early piece of, of Western propaganda. No, and for the benefit of our listeners, they should know that, of course, it was David Hasselhoff who brought down the Berlin Wall with his <laughs> Looking for Freedom song. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, without that flashing jacket uh, with, the, with the flashing lights on it, I don't know what would have happened. I would probably not be sitting here um, talking to you a lot in this, in this uh, capitalist country. That wasn't the first time that British rock music had penetrated into East Germany, was it? No, I mean, people always imagine that Western music was banned and you'd be lined up against the wall and shot if you listen to it in East Germany. Um, in actual fact, pretty much every Western trend that existed from Beatlemania to punk music in the West seeped into East Germany as well. There, there was uh, an obligation to stick to a 40-60 ratio in music. So 40% of the music that you played on the radio, on TV, uh, in, in music venues and dance clubs and things had to be uh, East German and 60% had to, or could be, sorry, the other way around, 40% uh, could be foreign music, basically, and 60% could be, or had to be from uh, East German artists. And so this basically meant that 40% of the time you could play American, British, whatever, foreign music, basically, um, as well. It was frowned upon at times, this kind of fluctuated a little bit, depending on whether the regime was on a course of trying to placate people or whether they wanted to crack down. Um, but on the whole, this 40-60 ratio stuck throughout the whole um, time. So my mum tells me the story with, with Gusto, where basically she used to lead a, um, a youth club in Titau, in, in deepest, darkest Saxony by the by the Polish and, and Czech borders. Um, and you had to hand in the playlist of any event um, that you wanted to host. So say if it was a, a dance night on a Saturday night, you had to hand in a sample playlist to the local authorities and they would check that you stuck to the 40-60 ratio. And because that wasn't enough, um, a, a folks policist, the people's policeman would turn up um, at night, you know, as, as proceedings were underway and everyone was getting sort of drunk um, to try and check whether you were sticking to the 40-60 ratio. And, and she says that basically what they did is they just got a bunch of the, the sort of nicest and giggliest girls together who would sit down with this policeman, pour him a glass of beer and convince him that they'd stuck to the 40-60 ratio <laughs> all night. Um, <laughs> and it was absolutely fine. So, you know, Beatlemania was a, was a huge thing. My 
my again my mum remembers um that that she uh, got hold of a of a Beatles LP um because sometimes they'd get a batch of western music into the record shops um but they were so sought after that you had to stand and queue for hours and then you were so glad when you finally got one and she she managed to get this uh Beatles MP, uh, LP and my dad wanted to take it along. He was a soldier at the time and had to go back to the barracks. So, you know, she being nice, lent it to him and said, yeah, yeah, take it along so you can listen to it. And he left it on the train as he got off. She's still not forgiven him for it even now um, because he just left this precious yeah, Beatles LP lying around. And this this um, generated a sort of semi-state sanctioned um, form of East German rock music, which gets a really bad press and has been really overlooked by history to the point where um, I've got one um, sort of academic manual on German pop music and it just says we're not going to talk about Eastern rock music because it's not interesting. Um, (laughs) But I think some of it's great and I also think it's absolutely fascinating that um, you had something that had the, um, not just the kind of um, outward form but also the kind of um, substance of rock music, you know, the the lyrics about the things that are um, moving people in a state that exercised such um, enormous control over its citizens' lives and this cat-and-mouse game with the with the censors is such an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it really is, especially as the um, regime at various points wanted to get the youth back on board and were genuinely trying to create uh, or have music created that was exciting and interesting to young people. So what they did for a long time is they just trained artists so they basically paid for young people to go to the music academy and they were all properly you know musically trained basically people um who were then given a fair degree of autonomy uh during various periods of opening up basically before people cracked down on them again um but on the whole there was a degree where you could just about get away with certain you know if you used enough metaphors and you were trying to express things through those uh you know sort of lyrics basically on the whole people were left to their own devices there and, and created music that was, um, you know, basically popular with the people in East Germany as well. Not so much with young people. I think just the fact that there was this 40-60 ratio and LPs were so hard to come by that it made it almost more precious. You know, they were sort of keen to to listen to the to West Radio, for example. So again, people sat there with, you know, cassettes trying to cut bits from the, or record bits from the from West Radio and then keep them on on cassettes basically for themselves that sort of thing but I think it was a sense of it was hard to come by and therefore became more precious whilst this Ostrog was kind of standard it was there it was it was government sanctioned and therefore had perhaps a bit more of a boring reputation than than is justified it's certainly still hugely popular now so bands like the Pudis for example were like an East German uh, rock band um, they're still hugely popular they get played at you know people's parties people go to large concert halls to listen to them into their music. Uh, East German bands would also just play cover versions of West German songs. So quite often you'd have a band and, you know, somebody would shout, uh, I don't know, play us a Beatles song and they just do it. Um, and you could also listen, you know, through East German artists, basically to West German or West, sorry, Western music um, as well. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of Ostrock was pretty rubbish and boring, but some of it was really good. And I, I'd like to put in a word here for a band called Silly originally had to call themselves the family silly or the silly family um, because the censors wouldn't let them call themselves by a name that was too obviously English and sort of suspiciously imbued with capitalist overtones or something. And they had this um, spectacularly charismatic lead singer called Tamara Dance and um, they got a poet in, a guy with the wonderful name Werner Karma, to um, to write their lyrics. Um, 
and uh, they managed to smuggle some pretty pretty good stuff past the censors. Um, and um, some of their some of their tracks are fantastic. There's an album where we'll put the, um, a lot of Ostrock in the in the Spotify playlist I mentioned. There's an album that's worth checking out called uh, Mont Clamot, which is named after this gigantic um, mountain of rubbish piled up over an old World War II flak tower in in Friedrichshain in East Berlin that became a sort of metaphor for everything that was rotten in the East German state. And I, th- I think it, musically it stands on its own. And some of their stuff is as good as anything I've heard from, from West Germany. Yeah, and then there's also a lot of very light, poppy type music, um, which, you know, people just loved because it, it played to their everyday experiences. So, for instance, there's Nina Hagen's uh, famous Du hast den Farbfilm vergessen, meaning he, for- he forgot the, uh, you know, colour um, color photography uh, stuff to take you know on holiday and she was singing the whole song about how they went on holiday and it was a brilliant experience and everything was bright and sunny and colorful when we came back there were just these horrible black and white pictures because it was so hard in Germany to um in East Germany certainly to um you know to produce color photography still at the time and, and it's just played to people's sensibilities and whilst that is also a veiled criticism of the government's you know failure really to provide people with even the basic equipment that people had in the west um that that was something that was played all over the time uh, all over the radio all the time because it was it was just something that everyone could relate to really even though it seems trivial um but it is also a sort of a criticism of the state and she actually actually uh, left for um the west in, in 1978 as an artist and then joined the punk scene in in britain um so she's certainly not somebody who made music to please the state as such but created music to be critical um, maybe just one last uh, song that is that is certainly it's a bit cheesy, but people like it even now. It's called uh, "Jugendliebe" by uh, Ute Freudenberg, which is a song about young love, and it still gets played on people's weddings and everything. It's kind of about how you change from being a child to being a, a young adult with your with your first ever love, and then everybody gets all teary eyed and, and romantic about it. And that's again something has absolutely nothing to do with the state, but she was a state sponsored artist without actually creating sort of music that was politicized in any shape or form it was just your your typical cheesy you know sort of love themed um love themed music well the crowd may be screaming out for more but the burly stage manager waiting in the wings is signaling that it's time for one last guitar solo and chorus um, this time neither of us has a book to flog on the subject but um if you would like to find out more about what you've heard today um i can recommend um the autobiography of horst fascher who was the um bouncer we heard about earlier who put a um, bucket of cold water over John Lennon and his German girlfriend. It's called Let the Good Times Roll. I've dipped into it and it's, it's really good fun. On Kraftwerk, a lot of the books tend to be pretty hagiographic, but um, there's one that came out a couple of years ago by a German academic called Uwe Schutter that's, that's very good, particularly on its sort of its influences on subsequent music. And then for Bowie in Berlin, um, I can really recommend um, Paul Trinker's biography, I think it's called Starman, um, but also uh, it's a bit of a weird book, but I really enjoyed it. Um, Edgar Froese's memoir, Force Majeure, which has a whole long chapter on Bowie. Thank you for listening and goodbye from Sussex. And Chausen Bernhausen from Berlin. Goodbye. <laughs>